0: Good morning. How are you? Okay? Good? All right. Good to see you guys. Open your Bibles to Matthew 22. We'll be in verses 1 through 14 today, and while this starts a new chapter in our Bibles, this is actually a continuation of the same teaching that Jesus started last week in the presence of the religious leaders with two parables, and this is the third Of three parables that he shares with them so we'll read it first and then dive in together and explore what Jesus is trying to teach them and us here today Matthew 22 verses 1 through 14 if you don't have a Bible it should be on the screen behind me as well and again Jesus spoke to them in parables saying The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Therefore, go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Those who have ears, let them hear the word of the Lord. Last week, um, as I mentioned a moment ago, when Pastor Matt shared with us from the end of chapter 21, we heard about the chief priests and the elders who came up to Jesus to challenge him on his authority, what authority he had to be saying the things that he was saying. It seemed that they felt threatened by Jesus's authority and his influence, and so they were trying to trap him uh, in his words so that they could ultimately get rid of him. Of course, we've followed Jesus long enough now in the Gospel of Matthew to know he's a pretty smart guy. And he responds cunningly and dodges their attempt to corner him by pinning them down with their own hypocrisy, which was that on the one hand, they were unwilling to accept that John the Baptist was actually from God, but on the other hand, they feared the people who understood that John the Baptist was from God. And Jesus is basically like, you can't have it both ways. You either need to be bold enough to face the consequences from the masses of people who recognize rightly who John was, or you need to recognize rightly who John was and recognize he was from God. So Jesus doesn't ask their, or I should say, answer their question about where his authority came from, but I want you to hear and see this. It didn't stop there. He didn't respond that way to them and walk away. He goes on to tell them three parables And what I want you to see here is that hypocrites, though these religious leaders may be, Jesus cared about them. He would not have taken the time to teach at length here if he was not also interested in their repentance. See, I think the natural response when we don't care about somebody is either to ignore them or to seek some vindictive response, some vengeful response to them and walk away. But that's not what Jesus does here. He continues to patiently teach them, even if with some scathing words. And here's what Jesus's first two parables really boiled down to that Pastor Matt shared from Matthew 21 last week. And that is that grace is freely given to those who embrace the responsibility of kingdom citizenship. Now by responsibility, I mean the work that we are called to do as Christians. So last week, Jesus was painting a picture for us of the outward fruit that should be the mark of a true Christian. We saw it in the first parable. Two sons were instructed by their father to go into the vineyard. The first one verbally consents. Says sure. Never goes. The other one verbally rejects at first. Mm, I'm not going. But in the end he eventually goes. And Jesus points out that as the one whose actions reflected obedience in the end, that was the one who did the will of his father, even if his words initially had rejected those instructions. And there's a second parable. In this parable, you have tenants working a vineyard. They're actually already in the vineyard at this point, And they're apparently doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're tilling the soil, they're cultivating these vines, producing fruit of a kind. But what we see in the difference here is that they leveraged their position as tenants in that garden. They leveraged the work that they were doing for selfish gain rather than for the master's gain. It isn't that they didn't produce fruit. There was a kind of fruit produced. It's just that they wanted to keep it for themselves. Or put a little differently, the fruit that they labored for served to serve their own needs and desires rather than to glorify God. So both of these parables have the responsibility of God's true people, the responsibility of Christians in view. The first had to do with the responsibility of obedience in general, as true fruit of Christianity. But the second goes a little bit deeper and had to do with the responsibility to leverage your obedience, not for your own selfish gain, but for the glory of God. Because it's quite possible to be doing the right things, but with the wrong motives. As was the case for the religious leaders whom Jesus was speaking to, who were seeking to preserve their own authority, but at the expense of the mission of the Son of God. But then there's this third parable. And in the third parable, there's a significant shift to focus more squarely, not on the responsibility now, but the motivation of true Christianity. Now, what we'll see is that the responsibility and fruit piece does come back into play towards the end of this parable, and we'll get to that. But motivation is what is in view here. That is, what is it that truly inspires the kind of faith that leads to obedience to begin with? So the scene now has shifted from that of a vineyard, all right, a place of service, to that instead of a wedding feast, a place of joyful celebration. Very different setting, hence very different Point that Jesus is trying to make here. Or put a little bit differently, it's shifted from the responsibility of a true follower of Yahweh to the joy or the privilege that's recognized by those who are true followers of Yahweh. So if Jesus's point last week was, as we said, grace is freely given to those who embrace the responsibility of kingdom citizenship, then Jesus's point this week in this third and final parable is that grace. Is freely given to those who recognize the privilege and honor of kingdom citizenship last week had to do with responsibility this week has to do with motivation the fuel to carry out that responsibility which is recognizing the privilege and honor it is to be called by God now we've all been to weddings I went to one last weekend weddings are great who doesn't like to go to a wedding all right? If nothing else, there's good food, there's usually good socialization, they're fun. But one thing maybe that I've realized more and more, as I get a little bit older, as I go to more weddings, is it's not just about the joyousness because of what we get to do and the fun that we have. There's also an honor to being invited to a wedding. All right? As you realize, man, I'm counted important enough by those at the center of this celebration to have been invited to this. There's an honor to that. A privilege to that now consider that in this instance of the parable and whose presence these guests are being invited into now you have the king inviting you to dine with him with no doubt the best food the best accommodations and the best company possible you're being invited into the presence of royalty as he celebrates his son this is an incredible honor that should humble and evoke joy in all those who are invited. Which is why then, the response of the first group of guests who were invited to this wedding feast is so mind-boggling. At least in those previous two parables we looked at last week, the reluctance on the part of the sons and of the tenants is a little bit more understandable. Not justifiable, but understandable. There was a cost-benefit analysis going on. For the sons and the tenants, they're thinking to themselves, is what I get out of this worth the effort I'm putting into this? Is there enough in this for me? Because they're being called to work and labor in the vineyard. But here, with the invitation to the wedding feast, what was there to lose? Nothing. With this parable, Jesus is is addressing and identifying, he's highlighting the irrationality of those who reject the invitation to follow him. The irrationality of rejecting the eternal joy that comes from his invitation to be with him. It's borderline insane. It's like if somebody came up to you and said, hey, the king has invited you to his amazing all-you-can-eat buffet. Do you want to come with me? And you're like, nah, I'm good. Really looking forward to that microwavable pizza later tonight. Do you see how irrational it is that these guests would reject this invitation? So here's what I think is happening. The question, first of all, at the heart of the two parables from last week is this, am I willing to pay the price that comes with following after Jesus? But the question that comes at the heart of this third parable is, is what Jesus has to offer me better than the alternative? Or is there something better out there that will make me happier and make me more fulfilled? Really, it comes down to this simple question. Do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that your greatest good comes from God? Do you believe that every good thing you have and that you experience ultimately comes from His hand? Do you believe... He ultimately has your good in mind even when you go through the most difficult of circumstances. If you do believe that about God, then you realize it's ludicrous to possibly even consider turning down an invitation to be in the presence of the one who is the source of everything good and everything right in this world. And if you don't, it's the only possible explanation for why an offer like this would ever be turned down. You either believe God isn't good, or you believe there's a greater good out there that you could somehow acquire on your own. Now, no one who is a professing Christian is likely to say, yeah, I follow Christ, but I don't believe God is good, right? But our actions sometimes betray that underlying belief, and so we're given three different examples in this parable of what a rejection of God's goodness could look like, ranging from the overt and obvious on the one hand, to the much more subtle on the other. Firstly, you have those who aggressively oppose the king through their hostility toward his servants, who come and they treat them shamefully and they kill them over an obvious, right? Aggressive opposition to Jesus. Then you have a little bit more nuance with the second group, those who are apathetic to the invitation. We're told that they paid no attention. Literally, what that means is they did not care. They were indifferent. It just didn't stir their soul at all, the prospect of being able to dine in the presence of the king. And we're given a hint as to why, based upon the detail that follows, we're told that they went off, one to his farm, another to his business. See, what stirred their soul the most was not the privilege of being invited to dine in the presence with the king of this kingdom, but the lure of acquiring security and success by tending to worldly affairs. Now, work is a necessary thing and a good thing, but even necessary things, when they captivate our hearts, will become ends in and of themselves. And then, when Jesus invites us into his presence, Presence, at least our actions, if not our words, will say, I don't care. These other things are more important to me. That's the second group. Finally, you have this third and most subtle category of rejection in the form of this guest who is a part of this second crop of guests that were invited who wasn't hostile towards the king's servants, and he wasn't indifferent, choosing to pursue success and security instead, He actually shows up to the wedding feast, but something was off. He wasn't dressed in the right attire. And that may seem odd to us in 21st century America, but if you understand the culture and traditions at the time of first century Palestine, that was a major faux pas. See, a part of the expectation for these occasions was that in order to show proper honor and respect for the one who had invited you, especially if it was a king, You would only wear your best, your finest, your cleanest, and your whitest apparel for that occasion. But this man did not. Perhaps it appeared he just rolled out of bed or something. I don't know. But the king comes to him because he notices he's not dressed appropriately for the occasion. And I think to eliminate the possibility of ignorance on this man's part, he asks him a question, friend, how did you get in here dressed like that? And he had no answer. He was speechless, which was an answer in and of itself. Because you see, this wasn't a matter of confusion on his part, he knew better. He had gotten the invite, he showed up on the feast day, but he didn't ever take seriously the instructions as to how to prepare for proper wedding etiquette. He knew what was required of him, but he didn't prepare accordingly. So who was this man? And who does he represent today for our sake? Well, to back up for a moment, this man was one of the bad, from the bad and good that we read about in verse 10, that were gathered from the highways and byways, the second group of guests that the king sent the servants out to invite, but probably not bad in the way that you might first think. See, he wasn't bad in the sense that he was a worse sinner than others, necessarily. What distinguished him as bad was that he wasn't clothed rightly. He wasn't clothed in the righteousness of God of Christ. Whereas what made the others good is that they were. They wore the proper garments, inspired by their understanding of the privilege and the honor it was to go and be in attendance of the king and his son. Now, just to clarify and to draw some examples from elsewhere so you know how I'm deriving this understanding of bad and good in this passage, this is the same distinction for bad and for good that Matthew has used elsewhere with Jesus' teaching that he's recorded, such as in Matthew 13, the parable of the net, where there are men who gathered fish of every kind, very similar to our story, going back out to the roads, gathering all the people, and then they sorted out the good from the bad. We're told they separated the righteous from the evil. Earlier in that chapter, maybe even more importantly, context is important, was the parable of the weeds, which if you remember, We're told in the parable, the weeds, that the wheat, those who are not true believers, will be allowed to grow up along with the wheat, almost indistinguishable. And they're only going to be separated in the harvest at the end of time. See, the idea is that between now and judgment day, the physical church isn't necessarily pure, made up of only true believers, but there are both wheat and tares true citizens of the kingdom and those who are posing as true citizens of the kingdom but the latter will be found out by the king this man may have been able to fool the other guests for a time but the king recognizes the discrepancy see this man easily could represent a member of a local church who had heard the gospel came to church maybe he was even a member of the church for his whole life He understood the theology behind the gospel. He was able to articulate it to others. He'd heard the call to count the costs, to lay down his life and to follow after Jesus. He'd heard the radical metaphors, gouging out your eye, cutting off your hand, rather than sinning and being thrown into the pit of hell. He knew what was required of him, but he never prepared accordingly. The appearance of his life was out of place for the setting of the kingdom of God and he knew it how could he not it was a part of the instructions on the invitation for the wedding feast but he never took it seriously enough until the king of the universe on judgment day came to him and said friend how did you get in here dressed like that and the consequences are devastating as Jesus goes on to say in Matthew twenty-two thirteen, then the king said to the attendants Bind him, hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And just to be clear, this is the same description that Jesus has used elsewhere to describe hell. Eternal judgment and separation from God. See, there are some in the church, the big C church, perhaps even in our own, who are contented to accept the blessings of God, without ever accepting the responsibility that comes with it. Perhaps you've convinced yourself and others that you're a Christian by doing just enough to seem like you're a part of the crowd, but you've never really conformed to the expectations that were on the invitation to follow Jesus. And hear me, it's not fulfilling those expectations that ultimately is what saves you, but they are what indicates whether or not you've truly recognized the privilege it is to be, called into fellowship with God to begin with and if nothing changes you might find yourself caught off guard one day when you come before the king of kings and he asks you the question friend how did you get in here dressed like that now to be clear this is a warning remember this is a, a parable None of this has actually happened yet. There is still a chance for those who hear the word of God to repent, including us. Now, there are at least a couple of common critiques that you will find of the God of the Bible that are either stumbling blocks or excuses to not take Christianity seriously. And this passage could be used to support either one of these critiques, and yet at the same time can be used to address both. Those questions are, how can a good and loving God condemn anyone to hell? And on the flip side perhaps of that same coin or the inverse, how can a good and loving God allow evil to persist? I think the problem actually with both of those questions is probably that on the one hand we see ourselves as undeserving of hell and on the other hand we see much of the world as deserving of it and that may be the source of where those questions come from. But let me just point out how this passage addresses both of these questions. First, how can a good and loving God condemn anyone to hell? For the person who asks this question, I would want to pastorally encourage them to become more acquainted with the unthinkable and unfathomable patience of God that we see in his word and that we experience in life. I want you to notice back in chapter 21, as I pointed out earlier toward the beginning, Jesus doesn't just shut down the religious leaders here with a drop the mic moment, walk away, smugly reveling in the knowledge of their ultimate destruction. No, he, he remains present and he teaches them and he offers them three parables as mirrors to be able to see themselves in here. And then even in the parables themselves, there's an unthinkable patience on the part of the father and of the master and of the king. First of all, the father doesn't disinherit the son after his initial rejection of the instruction. But there's a patience there, and that son ultimately turns things around and recognizes the worthiness of the father to go into the the vineyard in obedience. Then in the second parable, you've got the master who sends out not one, but three waves of representatives to attempt to gather in the fruit of the harvest that was ultimately his, even after the first two waves had been beaten and killed. And then we see in this third parable, the king sends out multiple invitations, three actually, if I had time to point out, three invitations before he sends the troops to destroy the murderers and their cities. God is incredibly patient toward mankind in many respects this is symbolic of the the ages that have passed where god sent prophet after prophet to plead with israel to turn and to repent but oftentimes we mistake this patience as indifference on god's part or as impotence on his part on the other hand the inverse question is how can a good and loving god allow evil to persist god's too patient or he can't do anything about it. Well, the answer to that is he doesn't allow evil to persist. It might not be on the timetable that you and I would prefer or map out, but this third parable makes it absolutely clear that justice will be served. This is who our God is. He's unthinkably patient on the one hand, and yet he's decisively just on the other. The essence of this nature and character of our God is captured maybe most profoundly, and one of the most renowned verses in the Old Testament used to describe God. It comes from Exodus 34, verses 6 to 8. This is when God is passing before Moses and he says to him, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Because nothing provokes worship in us like a fear of what the Lord should do to those who've rebelled against him and at the same time a wonder at what the Lord does do for those who've rebelled against him by extending a free invitation to dine in his presence that he has paid for. See, the point of this parable that Jesus is making here in the third parable is that we've all, we've all rebelled against God. No one should be invited into that wedding feast. But he does extend an invitation, not to those who deserve it, but based upon his grace and his mercy alone. I want you to note that in the ears of jesus's listeners as he tells this parable that second group of invitees of guests that he extended the invitation to the riffraff found along the main roads would have appeared less worthy in the hearing of those who are listening than those first guests that had been invited to the feast. These were the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the sinners that at first rejected the Father's instruction back in the first parable. The outcasts, the marginalized, but not just that. The Gentiles, but not just that. True sinners who wanted nothing to do with God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. And then changed their mind. The point is this. The point is that our worthiness, what makes us worthy and grants us access into God's presence, isn't anything to do with ourselves. It's not our own righteousness, not our own good works. It's simply the acceptance of God's invitation paid for by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. This is faith, and that's all that it is. A faith that's inspired or motivated by a recognition of the privilege it is to be invited at all. And a faith that's marked by the fruit of true obedience, of following the instructions on that invitation of what's required of those who would attend to the king and his son. It's amazing grace. And yet it's also a grace that's amazingly rejected far too often. And not just by those aggressively oppose Jesus, but even by those who would claim to be with Jesus. But it's an empty claim, because it's not accompanied by a life that reflects an understanding of the privilege and honor that it is to be a kingdom citizen. As we celebrate communion today, we do so as a reminder of the invitation to dine in God's presence it came through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus to join him for the marriage supper of the Lamb that we read about in Revelation 19. See, this wasn't just a parable. This was actually foreshadowing something that God's people will truly enjoy one day. I want to read to you that passage from John the Apostle. Later in his life, he writes this as he's given a revelation from God. The book is called Revelation it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, John. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The wedding garment that's described here as the righteous deeds of the saints Those aren't made righteous by us or anything we do. But as it says, these garments are granted to us as a gift by the Lamb who was slain, by the groom of the bride, by Jesus. Which is why the angel concludes, blessed, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So let's approach the table today in this way with the wonder and awe of those who recognize the honor and the privilege that it is to dine with Jesus and his eternal kingdom. Pray with me, please. Gracious Father in heaven, we hear parables like these and in them we see both your patience and your severity. Your grace and the sobering reality of what happens when it's rejected. But Lord, these are all warnings. Everyone here who has ears can hear and repent. Your patience is still what is on display in this moment. So we thank you for that. Thank you for the sobering warnings you've given us through your son. We need that. Lord, we also thank you for the basis of the invitation you've extended to us, which has nothing to do with ourselves. Some here may feel as if they're not worthy of an invitation to dine with you at the marriage supper of the Lamb, but it never was about us. It's about you, your grace, your love, proven to us as you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for us in our place. And so we give you praise and thanks for that. And we approach now this time of worship and this time of remembrance of Jesus with a deeper understanding, I pray, of the honor and privilege it is to be invited by you, to be called by you, to be in your presence and to walk with you. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.